Hey there, I'm Melanie Reed, and this is The HR Mentor. Today, I am so thrilled to be bringing you an interview with one of my favorite people in the whole world, Joel Peterson. Joel is the founder and managing director of the Arbutus Search Group, and he was one of my favorite colleagues when I worked in a corporate environment not too long ago. Joel has been connecting the best and brightest professionals around the globe in Australia, Japan, Europe, the UK, and across North America since 2007. Joel is anything but a box checker when it comes to recruitment. He is so skilled at learning what makes a company an amazing place to thrive as an employee, and then he connects talented people and innovative professionals that are going to help take the organization to the next level. He really is my go-to person when it comes to anything related to recruitment. Joel wants to be remembered as the person that inspired others to stretch themselves to reach the goals that were previously unreachable and gained success in the work that they do, creating a more fulfilled, engaged, and connected life for them and their family. It's an incredible purpose, and he's an incredible person. And today, in this episode, we're talking about the way recruitment has changed in the face of COVID-19, what he's been experiencing, and he shares some really valuable advice for job seekers and employers. I think you're really going to enjoy it. So let's get started. Welcome to the HR Mentor Podcast, the podcast for emerging HR practitioners to get practical advice, tools, and strategies to build credibility, confidence, and ultimately a fulfilling HR career. So, welcome, Joel. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Melanie. I'm excited. I'm excited too. So why don't you start off sharing with the listeners a little bit about yourself and a little bit about Arbutus Search? Absolutely. Yeah, I've, I guess I've uh, been in recruiting in Vancouver for a little over 13 years, started my career in an agency, uh, recruiting engineers and IT people, and then went in-house to work for a couple of BC's top employers Worked in-house and I think really found my sweet spot there for a few years, working on corporate HR teams, helping build, you know, really what I called and what I felt were felt were world-class cultures, very diverse and inclusive cultures, and just had a lot of fun recruiting. And then in 2017, I started a company called the Arbutus Search Group, and we're a small boutique recruiting firm. Uh, you know, we really have a kind of a specialty in finding that right fit for your culture and helping you build diverse and inclusive teams. And I'm just really excited to be here and talk recruiting with you. That's awesome. Thank you. And I I do want to share with the listeners that you and I have known each other since 2015. And we did work together in in one of those corporate environments. And and certainly I've always felt like our our perspectives and our our values when it comes to organizations and people have always been really aligned. I'm excited to have you here to share with our listeners. Oh, so, I'm glad. Thanks for that. And I, uh, it may be the irony here is that I did recruit you at one point. That's true. <laughs> that is so true. Wait, you're smart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I. I I remember meeting you that first time and having that first conversation and admiring your approach and the conversation that we had. I, I remember just 
hanging up the phone. I was sitting in my car when we had that first conversation and thinking, wow, he's really good at this. It was impressive. Uh, I'm glad to hear that. I'm flattered. Thank you. No, it was good. I wanted to talk a little bit about what's been going on in the labor market and what you've been experiencing as a recruiter since the COVID-19 pandemic really started to hit us hard here in British Columbia and in Canada. And I think we can all agree that the last four and a half months have been the strangest and most unsettling times most of us have seen in our entire lifetimes. Yeah. But now we're starting to see organizations reopen, re-engage with customers, clients, and their employees, albeit probably very differently than they had before. So I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about what the last four and a half months have looked like for you and your team. You mentioned you work, your recruitment firm is a boutique recruitment firm. So what has this all meant for you? Yes, it, it has been an interesting you know, few months. And I think <clears throat> probably helps to point out that our firm and the work that we do is really primarily focused on kind of startups and smaller businesses that are kind of scaling and, and growing their teams in, you know, technology primarily, but we do work with, you know, a couple of clients in cannabis. We work across um, engineering, uh, manufacturing. We don't do a lot of retail and I will say retail, I think has been, you know, retail, hospitality, tourism has been hit the hardest in this. So I'm, yeah. you know, I'm feeling for those, those sectors, you know, it's been a real, kind of roller coaster, I think, for a lot of people. Some organizations are hiring more than they've ever hired as a result of kind of an uptick in their business because, you know, maybe they're in online security or online collaboration. You know, certain tech companies with software that just is very useful during COVID, they're busy, they're growing. And so that kind of stayed the same. Now they're all trying to figure out, you know, how to work remotely and how to work from home and having, you know, what they call distributed workforces. But then there are other businesses where, you know, things have slowed right down. And, and I would say recruiting is one of them. We dropped right off where we would have had 20 to 25 ongoing requisitions, you know, open jobs to fill last year at any given day in 2019. We dropped to probably two or three in uh, the spring of, of 2020 here. So slightly terrifying, yet also exciting at the same time. You know, I think during a, a time like this in a pandemic, you really do have to step back and think, how do we reinvent ourselves? You know, what does the next year or two look like? And I don't think COVID is going away anytime soon. I don't think the vaccines are going to be in place where, you know, the majority of the population can take advantage of them. So you know, I think this is our new normal, quote unquote, for quite a long time. We've always been remote. We've always worked as a distributed workforce, our team. And so it's really nothing new for us. It's business as usual. And I will say the good news is, Melanie, that the, the market has really picked back up in the last kind of three to four weeks. We've seen a right. lot more roles coming available, a lot of entry level roles, but then some senior roles that are really business critical for people to continue on with the projects that they had kind of shelved for a few months there that they're kicking right. off again bit of a roller coaster, up and down, different sectors affected differently. But I think at the end of the day, things are starting to come back. And for some companies in certain industries, it's very much business as usual and, and back to business. That's great. I'm glad you said that about you don't see this changing anytime soon, because I think 
I think for some people, there's this hope that the switch is going to go off, even when we do have a vaccine, and suddenly the world is going to look exactly how it did in, you know, November 2019 or December 2019. And I agree with you. I don't think our workplaces are going to be the same. I don't think people are going to hire the same way. I know from talking to my clients, they're putting more risk mitigation strategies in place when it comes to hiring and what they take on because there is that level of uncertainty. And and we don't really quite know what the new normal is going to look like, even when we do have a vaccine, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's good that businesses start to have that conversation with their employees and, and start to think about that. Yeah, the the most common questions we're getting right now from candidates is, can I work remotely? How many days do I need to be in the office? And even as far as what what safety protocols are in place, that's going to be the conversation for quite a long time, I think. And you know, I, I do hear some companies saying, well, in January, well, you know, here's our back to the office plan or program in January. But if you think about you know an office that had a hundred people in it, you know, and they can only be most likely, I would say up to 50% capacity given two meters of space and, you know, opening up walkways and common areas not really being used the same way. And even the sanitation factor of, you know, wiping things down every few hours, I think it's going to be a lot of cost and a a lot of work to get 20 or 30% of your workforce into that office. And the overhead just, it won't make sense. I think businesses will really start to shift and say, this is our new normal. This is how we do business. Everyone works in a distributed workforce and it'll be, you know, much more accepted. I think it already is just for immediate safety concerns, but I think it'll, it'll have to, you know, kind of roll out over the next six months where people do have, you know, more of a commitment to a long-term distributed workforce. Yeah, I agree. And a, a follow-up question to that, when you're talking to employers, as you said, I think it's becoming more accepted, this distributed or remote working. Do you feel like employers are feeling a little like more comfortable with that? I know, you know, for years in HR, we've talked about telecommuting and and looking at programs for people to work from home and some of the cost benefits and environmental benefits. But at the end of the day, most places I've worked, most managers or leaders had this fear of, well, how do I make sure people are actually working? And I mean, you and I have talked about this before. That's never been our philosophy in terms of trust in the workplace and and building relationships and all of that, I think. Yeah that's always seemed a little bit strange, but what are you hearing now? Is there an increased comfort or is it just acceptance that this is what uh, employers are going to have to deal with? Yeah, great question. I I think we're really at the acceptance phase uh, as opposed to the embracing and, you know, comfort level with it. I I try and stay connected with different HR consultants around around the, the lower mainland like yourself. And and I really, you know, that's one of the questions I ask is how are you managing your workforce or how are you, you know, performance management, KPIs, um, right. just general leadership, what is it looking like? Is it shifting? And I think a lot of talented managers, maybe even experienced managers that, you know, aren't as concerned with, well, you know, so-and-so is sitting in their seat, so they must be working, but are more focused on results really are going to thrive. And I think it's just going to, you know, continue to shift where people will become more and more comfortable knowing that their employees 
results that they're producing are king, so to speak, versus the number of hours they see them online or in meetings in their calendars, you know, those, those sorts of things. But I think it's tough because we really, as HR professionals, we really need to offer the tools and the training to, to leaders to help them, you know, shift this mindset away from the bum and seat to what are the results and, yes. um, you know, training budgets are, are being cut, all sorts of, you know, extracurricular activities are being cut. So it is hard when people are kind of, you know, rolling back the budgets for training and development and those tools where you might be able to get a consultant in or, or just have your staff focus more time on it for development when revenues are down and, and things like that. So I think it's going to take a little bit of time for people to to embrace it and then also for just for some training and resources to get into the hands of those leaders to help them, you know, figure out how to to train and develop their team and really just be comfortable with them as a distributed workforce. Yeah, absolutely. I think like any major change, it just it's going to take time. It's going to take time and evidence and I think slowly the necessity will result in comfort or embracing of it. Agree. I think especially, and I always, you know, tell new practitioners this, when you're, you know, talking to leaders, you have to speak their language. And lots of times that's the language of cost or the sort of net benefit, right? So Mm -hmm. when they see the benefit of not having so many people in the office, from a cost savings perspective, and you and I talked about this earlier in the pandemic about leasing office space or having office space, that some of those costs are probably going to go down. And a lot of organizations are going to realize they don't need a whole floor of an office building anymore. And so I think over time, those realizations will help to shift the conversation from, can I trust my people to how do I embrace this or how do I manage to outcomes, so to speak? That's a whole other conversation. (laughs) Totally. It's great points though. (laughs) Yeah. You talked a little bit about some of the shifts that you're seeing in the labor market and, and it being industry or role dependent and who's hiring. Who do you see out there applying for jobs? Because I've gone through a couple recruitment processes with clients myself, just supporting them uh, with promotion and advertising. And one of the things that we had talked about was the fact that more people might be staying where they are if they're if they're employed right now and feeling that sense of security. What are you seeing when it comes to applicant pools? Yeah, I should. Um... And I should qualify my response here, Melanie, because we don't we don't do a ton of advertising in all candidness. We do a lot of headhunting and sourcing. We actually kind of shifted our business model from, you know, we, I mean, we've always sourced and we've always headhunted, but we did spend a lot of money in the early days on advertising. And we realized that you could write a great job description and still get 150 applications and, you know, 99% of them weren't the right fit. So we felt that it was a lot better to shift into headhunting and sourcing. And that, you know, maybe a good segue later on into why is your, your LinkedIn profile and having it up to date so important to foreshadow. But to answer your question, who are we seeing applying? You know, I think it's right across the board. There's certainly, in terms of interactions with both people we've sourced and headhunted and then people who have applied, yes, people are absolutely nervous about, you know, the stability of the organization that we're talking to them about. They want to know 
what the financial outlook is. And, you know, we don't need to give them balance sheets or anything, but they really want to know, is their market or their sector kind of recession proof and is it still thriving? And, you know, they want to know that they're not just moving from one, you know, business or industry that's maybe struggling a little bit to another one. And so they're doing more diligence on those things. And we've, we've even had people that have said, Hey, really appreciate your outreach. Thanks so much for thinking of me. Now is just not the right time. Um, Yeah. People have a lot on their plate, I think, right now, especially if they have kids and maybe even aging parents that they're the sole caregiver for. So, you know, we're trying to be cognizant of that and and really respect people's space when it comes to those types of things and really, you know, help them explore what this new role and, and opportunity could provide to them. But I think probably the biggest influx of roles right now and, and applications is coming from the entry level. There seems to be a lot of folks that are looking for work in that space. I think, unfortunately, a lot of them were the first to be let go. And right. so as a result, we're getting more applications in that space. And, you know, again, I think it's just really critical that if you're looking for work, you know, at the entry level, just with a couple of years experience, or even just a few co-ops under your belt, having that LinkedIn profile really buttoned down, really professional, lots of great content. And likewise, with your resume and cover letter, doing your diligence on the corporation that you're applying to, understanding their values, getting into the details of all of that good stuff to really make sure your application is on point. You know, that's, I think those are really critical. Sorry, I got off on a bit of a tangent there. No, that's okay. You're just answering the other questions ahead of time. So I love it. (laughs) Um, I, I think that's interesting about the entry level. I mean, a lot of the people that are in my network, a lot of my students, former students, that's what they're looking for. They're, they're mm-hmm. sort of first entry-level professional job. And, and many of them are looking for HR jobs. What advice do you have for those people that are, are looking for their first professional job? I think the most important thing is go meet some people. I could say it in a simpler way, but I don't want to scare people and use, use the term, go network. You know, yeah. It can be daunting for some some people. You know, there's this feeling of having to, when you go network, you, you know, have to do a presentation of yourself and you have to, you know, come away from that discussion with something, with some value. You don't. It's really about making meaningful connections. And that's why I say, just go meet some people. When I was in school and and going, you know, to classes, like I was just trying to get out there and, and meet people from all the different kind of corners of the school I was even kind of networking with people from other schools, you know, other institutions that I wasn't at. You know, I was working a part-time job at the keg, networking with people there, you know, asking my tables, so what do you do for work? You know, like it's right. about being curious and having conversations with people about what industries they're in, what types of work they do. Some people come out of college or university and, and realize what they took at school isn't what they're going to do for the rest of their life. And that's totally yeah. okay. But yeah. the realization that if they have the realization that they met a lot of great people who are, who are also connected and you try and keep, you know, stay connected with those people, you know, whether it's a quick phone call or now it's appropriate to maybe even do a FaceTime or a, a WhatsApp video, or even just a zoom call. If you have that, you know, and connect with people and check in with them and ask what they're seeing and what they're excited about in their work It'll really give people the impression that you're interested, that you're curious, that you're willing to learn. No, that's all it takes to make a great connection. And one day have somebody poke you on LinkedIn or send you an email and say, I've got a role that you might be interested in. Can we chat for five minutes? 
Exactly. Yeah. It's interesting because I think a lot of new professionals see networking as something that they do after they get their, you know, first professional job or when they're working for that, you know, that first organization. And I've really tried to stress that in my classes, but also, you know, through the podcast and my interview with my former student, Dean, you know, Mm -hmm. that was how he got his first job was by holding the door open for somebody and, and just taking that moment to say, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm a new professional and just wondering if you have anything. And, and they did. Wow. he didn't even, yeah, he just happened to get locked out of the building with the guy and held the door for him and helped him find his way back in. Is- just not being afraid to introduce yourself, say hi to somebody. And you're right. I love that you say that, that it doesn't have to be some pre-planned presentation with all the perfect words, just hi. And and that element of curiosity about being interested in somebody else. Yep. Uh, it's so you know. funny you mentioned Dean's scenario. So kind of similarly, when I was at BCIT, we had a, a recruiter come on site and just do into our classroom and do a presentation on, you know, kind of the, indus- the industry of recruitment and, you know, generally talking about sales jobs and opportunities out there. And he got a parking ticket while he was on site. And I had volunteered to walk him back to his car to make sure, I don't know, he got there safely, I guess, but I had volunteered to walk him back. We saw the parking ticket and I said, give me the ticket. Let me make some calls. I'll see what I can do to help you out. And he's like, Oh, that's great. Thanks, Joel. And off he went, I went and talked with security. I even got my professor to chime in on it and and just basically say, look, we're having industry professionals come here and support us as students. Is there anything we can do to give this guy a break? They wrote the ticket off and, and ripped the ticket up and said, no, he doesn't have to pay it. And he was so grateful well, it wasn't even, I think, a month later that he called me with an opportunity. And that was my first job coming out of college. That's amazing. So, incredible. You know, and actually that was working for Garth Peeper, who you know. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, it, it's so interesting because, you know, I, I said that to Dean in our conversation that, you know, that saying that nice guys finish last it drives me crazy. I, I don't like it. And, and this is just yet another example of how being... A, a kind human and helping out somebody can lead to something really positive. And I also put you in the like one of the kindest, nicest, pe- genuine people I know. And it goes a long way of just helping people oh, yeah. out. Yeah. And you don't do it because you think you're going to get something out of it. But you know, it feels good to help other people, but it can result in something and a connection and you know, so I think that's an important message for people. That's right. Yeah. What a cool story. I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't even know that Garth had hired you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. that's amazing. Very cool. Small world. It really is. Absolutely. So you talked a little bit about, you know, the fact that you've always worked remotely. I know some employers might be looking to start doing face-to-face interviews. I know a couple locally that are you know, having second interviews face to face now, but most people are probably going through the entire selection process remotely. Mm-hmm. What advice do you have for applicants about remote selection processes? How do how does that differ from being face to face? Or is there a difference? Is the preparation different? 
I've always felt like there's no real difference. You know, as a recruiter, I can do eight to 10 phone interviews a day and get a real sense of people on the phone. You know, you really do have to develop that skill of, of speaking with people on the phone and listening for cues that would tell you their personality type, maybe a little bit about their values, you know, how they might show up in a team setting versus working alone. You know, it's asking right. the right questions for sure. You you can't read body language on a phone interview, right. but then we do have, you know, a lot of our clients doing video conference interviews. I still think there's, you know, value in having somebody come on site if it's safe to do so. Okay. We're seeing a lot of organizations that are 100% remote. So there's no in-office work whatsoever. And then there's some where it's one day a week and then you know, others, it's staggered to maybe two or three days a week, but we don't have anyone that's 100% got to be in the office. And okay. so, yeah, the bulk of them are doing uh, video conference interviews and making making a selection from that over, you know, a couple of phone calls and a couple of video interviews. So I think, yeah, everybody's, at least in my network and, and our client base has really shifted. But I think there's, you know, maybe the one missing piece here that we're you know, we're still doing this on a temporary basis, we need to kind of, you know, make it more permanent is really how do we give them, you know, virtual tours of the office, if we do ever go back to the office, or if they're going to be in the office one day a week, and we can't get them in for a face to face kind of tour, is maybe getting on FaceTime with the individual or WhatsApp video and just walking through the office and introducing them to a couple of people that, you know, might be people they'll interact with once they're in the job. I don't think that would be a bad thing to do. I haven't seen it yet, but I think that'd be a great way to just give a, a person a, a sense or a feeling of the space that they're going to be in, even if it is just one day a week. I love that. That's a great idea. Yeah. I Yeah. Why wouldn't we do that? That just makes sense, right? Yeah. And you know what? You could even do it just as we're kind of thinking out loud here. You could even just film a video. Like a lot of employers haven't spent the time and money to to really develop an employee value proposition and, you know, an employer branded video, but you could even have somebody, I've got the iPhone 11 pro. It's got an incredible camera. If you had one of those for the whole office, you could just wander through the office, maybe meet a few people, record that. And without even, you know, much editing, have that as a, you know, maybe a file that lives somewhere that you could share with people. You could put it on your social media, but you could ultimately give people a sense of, and, and you probably want to do it now, if, even if you, you did one in, let's say, 2019, you probably want to do another one to give them today's feeling right. and vibe of the office. But you could absolutely do that and share that content with a prospective candidate so that they know what it's like. Because the worst thing or the last case, you know, the last thing you want to happen is for them to get great vibes and, and good feelings from the job description and people on the phone and then find out that actually being in the office is a very different experience. And that's why I yeah. always said not to rush the interview process and skip anything in the in the process because you really do want them to understand what they're getting into and have a realistic preview of that job and the environment is included in that. For sure. Yeah. And, you know, I think and, and I feel in some ways that it's the whole the way social media is shifting to be more in the moment, less scripted, mm -hmm. that's more accepted, right? It's the yep. TikTok phenomenon. It's here I am and here's what I have to say sort of thing and without a whole lot of editing or filtering or any of that. And I think people are appreciating that. It feels more authentic. It's more genuine. It's this is really what it looks like on a Tuesday in this office. Or <laughs> that's whatever. right. You know, like yeah. I... I 
I think employers have to, when it comes to branding, when it comes to telling their story, I I think they have to shy away from thinking that it has to be perfect or it has to be completely polished or done, you know, take tens of thousands of dollars to do. And it's not to take away from marketing companies that make beautiful videos. And there's value in that as well, you know, having those sort of legacy pieces. But when it comes to something like this, yeah, just get out there and, and take someone for a walk. I think that's fantastic. Absolutely. Totally agree. So what about for candidates? If they're going through remote interviews or selection processes, do you have any advice for them on how to make that process go more smoothly and how to make a good impression? Yeah, there's a ton of resources on YouTube and and other places to help them, you know, navigate how to set up their web camera, you know, or if they're using a phone, how to, how to do that, you know, how to kind of prepare for telephone interviews. I think, you know, at the, at the most basic level, I always, the advice I always give people is, have an elevator pitch ready, you know, that could be 30 seconds or less. And it's just a quick synopsis or summary of who you are, you know, what you're passionate about, maybe what your education was and and a highlight from that, maybe a big project that you're really excited about completing and what you're looking for. That's your elevator pitch. Then once you have that polished, you want to have your resume, kind of a summary of your resume that if they said, Hey, walk us through your resume or your career history, or your education and career history, you want to have kind of a summary of that in under, I would say in the sweet spot of about three to five minutes where you could walk them through, you know, at a little slower pace with a little more kind of detail and context to articulate some of your achievements, you know, your big wins, whether the school projects, co-op or internship projects, and then even part-time jobs that you might've had that, um, that you had some wins and again, thinking about all of these things in the context of the role you're applying for is really key. So I think those are the two two biggest things because when you, you know, that initial, so tell us about yourself, right? you know, people can spend five minutes and really not say anything relevant <laughs> to the role yes. of the company and people are going, well, that's great, but let's talk about you and this role. Just to have that elevator pitch ready for when they do say, tell us a little bit about you, I think is is really important. And then, if you know, from a technical perspective, just having a really good set of, of, you know, headphones with a microphone, you know, we experienced technical difficulties getting onto this uh, podcast this morning where my typical iPhone and Bluetooth AirPods didn't work. And so, you know, what was my backup, right? So having a backup right. to the to the plan A is, is always a really good thing, making sure your phone's charged. And, you know, if you are on a video conference interview, not holding the phone with your hand is really critical people can get seat mm-hmm. bouncing around as you're moving and shifting, you know, and whatever it takes to kind of prop that phone up and get it at a good height, a little bit above your eye level in a quiet space, I think is really critical. And yeah, just being focused, bringing some really meaningful questions that you think are valuable for your own knowledge, but also that that would articulate that you've done some research about the company. I think those are, those are all really critical things. Anything I missed? No, I would agree with all of that. I think an important one in this environment is that backup piece. Test everything first. And even if you do, recognize that it might not work the first time, right? So be early. If they send you something to test with the day before, do it the day before. Make sure you have somebody's phone number or they have your phone number in case there are technical issues. I was on a just a coffee chat with someone 
last week, I think it was, and and I couldn't hear her. And we kept thinking it was her. And so she logged off, came back on. It turns out that my speakers were on the wrong speaker setting. So it wasn't her at all. It was me. <laughs> so <laughs> I felt terrible because yeah. we're I'm like trying to coach her on her end. And yeah, and it was all my problem. You know, just recognize that those things could happen. Try not to get flustered by it, but do have a backup plan or a backup device, as you say. And then, you know, I always really encourage students to, or, you know, applicants to practice, you know, as you said, prepare for those questions, prepare your answers and practice them because interviewing is not something people do all the time. Mm -hmm. And so it's not a skill most people are really good at talking about themselves, expressing their strengths, having, you know, stories of their accomplishments. And so it, it takes practice. And I know, even for me, after being in this game for 20 years, if I had an interview tomorrow, I would still be nervous. Yeah, that's normal. (laughs) Never goes away. It never goes away until you start talking. And it's the same for me with my classes. The first time I open my mouth in a new class and start talking, I'm super nervous. Mm -hmm. People might not realize that, but I'm super nervous. And then and then you sort of settle in and and you get into your groove and the interview is the same thing. But when you practice, especially those questions at the beginning, then you know, if you kind of nail those first few and you feel confident, then you'll relax and then you can sort of think on your feet and the stress goes away a little bit. That's that's sort of my best advice is to be practicing those questions. It's not a time to wing it. <laughs> no, I, I agree. And you actually said something really critical there is that even if you are nervous, a lot of times your interviewer can't tell, but if you're prepared or not, they can tell. So if you've done a little bit of research, you know a bit about the company and you're nervous, they're most likely will have no idea. I've gotten that feedback so many times. We're like, oh, I'm I'm sorry. I was so nervous and I was fidgeting. We we didn't even know. Yeah, you seemed really, really comfortable. But I think it was because I prepared. And so if you're nervous and unprepared, that's, you know, when things aren't going to go as, as maybe as well as you'd hoped. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good point. There's a big difference, right? You also mentioned sourcing through LinkedIn, and you talked about this a little bit. But now, I mean, compared to when I graduated from university a long time ago, we didn't have social media, we didn't have LinkedIn and these ways to have a presence online. And this is, this has become a key way that employers find candidates is through LinkedIn. And and even if they're accepting applications, a lot of employers will go to the LinkedIn profile to get additional information or to see what the person's posting about or sharing. What advice do you have for newer professionals who maybe don't have a lot of work experience to market themselves through their LinkedIn profile? Yeah, great question, Melanie. I think right now a resume or a LinkedIn profile could look identical. I don't think there's a big difference. Some people will say, well, I don't want my resume on LinkedIn. Well, LinkedIn is your resume. You know, right. when you're net- networking with other people, you know, for business purposes. So maybe you're getting into sales or you're, you know, outward facing to prospective customers on some level. It's customer success, customer service, whatever it is. You know, they're going to go to your profile, look at it and see what you know and maybe what you've done. And likewise, you know, as a recruiter or an HR professional that's hiring, that's what we're going to do. So, you know, getting a really great summary, 
trying not to, you know, trying to leverage some important terms and terminology is good, but not to be too buzzword heavy, especially the kind of the empty ones like influencer or evangelist and, you know, different things like that, that really don't tell anybody anything, but, you know, a good headline that's kind of succinct about maybe the industry you're targeting, your, you know, your work experience or educational experience, and then into your summary Again, just a good summary of the work you've done, the achievements you've had, and, and again, what you're hoping to achieve in your career. And then, you know, when you get into some of the, the jobs that you've done or projects you've worked on, get them all listed on there and talk about the achievements and maybe some of the adversity that you overcame, you know, to really paint a picture of who you are and how you like to work. That'll just, that'll speak volumes for for people that are reading your profile and get them excited about talking with you and, and learning more about you and who you are. Yeah. I love that you mentioned that about achievements or accomplishments. I I really feel like that says a lot about a person, you know, what something they've overcome or what they've accomplished and and what their perspective is on that. Mm-hmm. And I usually encourage applicants to when they're preparing to think about an accomplishment that maybe shows some growth or mm-hmm. some personal reflection or some kind of realization. It doesn't have to be quote unquote professional accomplishment. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't have to be a project you completed or an assignment you got an A on. It can be something like making a major move to a new location, or it could be making the decision to leave a particular industry or job and, and what you learned from that. So I think that really says a lot to a potential employer about who you are and and what's important to you and what you value. And that's going to help them determine if this would be the right type of organization or or role for you to be in or that you would be happy in. Yep. Th- those are some great points. There's always nuggets of information that are going to be of value if you really sit down and think about what those are. That's that's a great point, Melanie. Yeah. A more specific question about LinkedIn, something that I always wonder about. A lot of students will ask me for recommendations on LinkedIn. Yeah. And I have I have sort of a set criteria and and obviously I can only speak to, you know, their time in my class because that's my interaction with them. And but I wonder from a recruiter perspective, how much impact do recommendations on LinkedIn have when you're viewing a person's profile? Like, do you think they're important? Is there value in them? I'm, I'm just so curious about that. Yeah, good question. I, I think there's value. I've, I've used uh, LinkedIn re- recommendations in the past, you know, not only looking for roles, like, you know, I said, hey, just if you're interested in my profile at all, you know, have a look at some of the recommendations that I've got. And then, you know, the prospective employer, you know, went and looked at it. And even myself as a recruiter, I've shared recommendations with managers that, you know, sharing the profile with them. And then I said, hey, and by the way, here's what a few of their recommendations were from past Uh colleagues. So I think, you know, there is value there. Does every recruiter do that or every HR professional do that? I don't know that they have the time. Right. You know, it's really going to be on a case by case basis, but you know, I'll say it this way, it's not going to hurt you. Um, okay. It certainly is going to add value in certain scenarios. And, you know, if there's a way that you can leverage those, you know, in, in your application, you could even, you know, put them into a cover letter 
I don't think that would be, you know, outrageous to think that that would add value. It's saying, hey, you know, hey, here's a couple of recommendations I've received on LinkedIn. And if that was in your cover letter, that is really going to catch somebody's eye. Mm. So, you know, if they go to your LinkedIn profile, they can absolutely see it right there. But yeah, I, I, I think there is going to be value for sure. Excellent. Yeah, never thought of that. That's a great idea to have, you know, one or two in your cover letter. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah. Maybe I'm going to have to go get some recommendations. There I don't know if I have any. I've never asked for one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you do. Do that. I'm sure you take, <laughs> take some advice from my students. Yeah. This is a question I've been dying to ask you. Uh, what are your biggest turnoffs when you look at a candidate's application or resume or LinkedIn profile? I know it's a tough question, maybe it's an unfair one, but not not no, not at all. I I think the biggest I mean the absolute biggest turnoff is someone that says they're detail oriented and they have spelling errors in their resume. Oh, you know, yes. <laughs> let's just, you know, and it turns off employers too, because oh. I've had that conversation with lots of employers. That's yeah, huge. Yeah, I mean, immediately managers, you know, ninety percent of managers immediately find the errors and go, "No, I I can't live right. with somebody that that can't spell, you know, uh, excellent right or you know just you know." There's a yes. spell check for everyone out there, so use it. You know, and and that's what I would say is spelling errors. You know, grammar errors are maybe a little more acceptable at the entry level. But, you know, I still think, you know, having someone check over if you if you don't feel confident in your own kind of spell checking and grammar checking ability, then having a second set of eyes on it. You know, those are the biggest glaring issue. I think the next kind of most important thing or the, the biggest turnoff for me is just not enough data, not enough information. Mm. I look at resumes and and I see two or three bullets and it's just, here's the two or three things that I was, you know, kind of were my core focus. Well, it doesn't tell me any context for the volume of work. It doesn't tell me any of your accomplishments, your major achievements. You know, it doesn't tell me if you're a team, you know, team player or, you know, if you worked in, you know, kind of alone, like really painting a picture is what you're trying to do. And it takes a thousand words to do that, you know, in a, in a sense, and if there's just not enough data, we have to assume, and I think your your listeners have probably heard the stats that it's somewhere between three and six seconds that it takes to review a resume. Now that's right. I mean, if you just stop and think about that, that's that's insane. That's that's crazy that somebody could make a judgment in three seconds on your resume. But if there isn't enough data there, they have to guess, and they won't. Most times, ninety nine percent of the time, they won't guess. They'll move to the next resume. Right this idea of having to have your resume on one page is crazy. Um, I agree. You know, just write until you, you can't write anymore. There's nothing else to share and then pair it back from there. Like get rid of some of the stuff that really isn't relevant to that job or, you know, you don't think would be relevant to a reader, but I think get as much data as you can in there and talk about accomplishments and achievements and how you worked and what you worked on and just give people a lot of context for, the work that you did and, and what environment you did it in. And I think that'll be, you know, the best way to get, get those eyeballs onto your resume and keep them on there for, you know, 10 or 15 seconds where they drop you into the interview pile. Right. Yeah. You know, I get so many 
people coming to me and saying, if I give them advice on their resume and they say, oh, well, I, I was told it can only be one or two pages. And I see these guides online. If you have 10 years experience, it can be three pages. If you have five, it can. Yeah, and right. I just say, forget about all of that. Just forget about it. You're you're telling a story. And I always remind students that the point of the resume and the cover letter is to get the interview, not the job. Yeah. You're not getting the job with this, yep. but you need to give them enough information and the right information to make them want to talk to you. And then you can elaborate with more detail. But I also tell them, like, whatever elements you think are the most important for that particular job, so what they might be screened on, minimum qualifications, et cetera, should always be at the top of the resume. Yep. And in an easy to read manner so that you do get put in that, I want to read more pile, mm-hmm. right? Agreed. Does that make sense? Yep. Agree hundred percent. Yeah. So what I've always done on my resume from as long as I can remember is I have like a summary at the top that highlights the ways that I believe I fit this particular job. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. And that, that way the person doesn't have to read for more than three to five seconds, as you say, before they get put in that next pile of, you know, digging a little bit deeper, so to speak. Yep. Right. I like it. But I, I love what you're saying about giving context, like just listing the duties from your job description in your resume under that job doesn't tell me anything about how you did that job. It just tells me what was in your job description. That's right. Um, <laughs> You know, and and that's not really helpful to me. That's right. Yeah. Talk about how proficient you were at it or how you grew sales or how you optimized, you know, the benefits program at your internship or just, you know, some of the wins that you had definitely need need more context so that people, you know, like I said earlier, so that people don't have to guess. You don't want them. Exactly. No, absolutely. It's a really good point about the guessing piece because One of my clients gave me this book and it's about recruitment and well, recruitment and selection. And the advice the person gives is that the screening process is designed for you to try and say no. You're, Mm -hmm. you're trying to say, to find reasons to say no, not yes. That speeds up the process. So if, if somebody if it's not obvious that they meet your minimum qualifications, then they're a no. You're not trying to figure out how to find a yes in that. Yeah. They don't meet it. They're a no. Move on. Yeah. And that really struck me. I'm going to work that into my class this semester because I never really thought about it that way. But that's exactly what you're trying to do. Yeah. Find a way to say no, not yes. Because you can you can dig all day and try and make that person fit into your role if you want them to. But that's not the point of screening. Yes. Great point. Yeah. So just just to wrap things up, I think you've you've shared some really great advice for job applicants. And I feel like we've got a really good sense of what's happening out there when it comes to recruitment and hiring right now. Can you tell our listeners where they can learn a little bit more about Arbutus Search or if they, you know, are are interested in learning more about careers in recruitment, how they can find you? Yes, absolutely. We're always looking to connect with with people that are excited about recruitment in general. So 
you know, you could email me at just at my email address, which is joel at arbutussearch.com. And that's J-O-E-L at A-R-B-U-T-U-S-S-E-A-R-C-H.com. Or on our website, arbutussearch.com. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn uh, under the same company name. And then uh, on Instagram as arbutussearch. Awesome. Thank you. And are you comfortable if people want to reach out on LinkedIn and connect with you personally? If I wasn't a recruiter, uh, <laughs> or if I wasn't and I was a recruiter, I wouldn't be a very good recruiter. So uh, <laughs> roundabout way of saying yes, absolutely. Always love connect. Good answer. You know, as I said earlier, love meeting new people. So for sure. Perfect. Yeah. We'll definitely link to all of the ways they can connect with you in the show summary on the website as well. So Awesome. Well, Joel, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I always love hearing your voice. I've always enjoyed working with you. So this was really fun for me. And uh, yeah, I I hope uh, you enjoy the rest of your summer and that things continue to go well. Well, thanks, Melanie. I've really enjoyed the chat too. And I just love the work that you're doing out there, you know, helping young HR practitioners really be the best that they can be for their organizations. And I really do believe it's incredible work that you're doing to help, you know, kind of grow and and build the HR function out for so many great organizations. So, yeah, thanks for the time and and really great to chat with you, too. And, yeah, hope you enjoy the rest of your summer. Thanks, Joel. You're so sweet. Isn't he just the best? Joel, thank you so much for spending this time with me and for sharing all your wisdom and advice. Really fun to sit down and chat. And I look forward to us doing it again really soon. In fact, next week, we're going to have part two of this interview where Joel and I are going to talk a little bit more about recruitment agencies and how that can help your organization. If you haven't already subscribed to the HR Mentor Podcast, I would be so very grateful if you did, wherever you prefer to listen. As always, thank you so much for being here. I'm grateful for your time. Take care. Bye for now.